This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sandbox v. Railroad. Dennis Wheatley, disinformation artist. Games within games. And Lost Continents. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The crunch of Doritos and the rattle of dice. Those familiar signals tell us that we have once more entered the gaming hut. Those signals and the shriek of a endless argument. Uh, this endless <laughs> argument, the argument between sandboxing and railroading. And while you might think that since one of them has a good name and one of them has a bad name, the argument is over. <laughs> Robin, I'm sure you have more than that. Yeah, so there are certain arguments that in whatever realm of human endeavor you enter uh, inevitably coalesce around any discussion and knock that discussion off, dare I say, the track and back onto a familiar track of an argument that people either are fixated on or persist in uh, focusing on. And I would have to say that in the realm of role-playing, uh, even more useless than an addition war argument is the sort of default argument that all questions of player agency and control immediately default to, well, not immediately, but ineluctably over a course of several comments, but by about comment five or six on a thread, that of anything that seems remotely to touch on the issue of player autonomy and, and who gets what, say, in a role-playing session between the players and the GM, you tend to get into this, uh, as you've pointed out, Ken, stacked dichotomy of the sandbox versus railroad. And I find this uh, frustrating for a number of reasons, and I'm now going to use the enormous and immense power of this podcast in an attempt to get people to try and get themselves out of that box and to start thinking about the question of player autonomy in a more multi-knobbed, uh, multi-levered form. <laughs> because if Canada's history has taught us anything, it's that earnest talk on the radio will stop arguments forever. Indeed, yes. Well, maybe not elsewhere, but perhaps within Canada at any rate. So as you pointed out, it's a stacked series of terms where the sandbox sounds like a really good thing and the railroad sounds like a really bad thing. But... When you look at any of these arguments where people are discussing the relative merits of having more or less agency as players, you quickly see that no two people have the exact same definition of what a railroad is. And most people will agree that it is bad, but they define it uh, in different ways. And they define it in so many different ways that it is not a useful discussion, and inevitably turns into a definitional argument in which people argue past one another, which perhaps explains the strength and power of the argument. Uh, you said something interesting a couple of episodes ago where we were talking in brief about sandbox play, where you described the effort of the sandbox to dig up the plastic dinosaurs for three or four sessions and then find 
whatever it is that you're going to do with the plastic dinosaurs, which implies that even in a uh, so-called sandbox play, you're eventually going to coalesce around some sort of goal or activity. And so the question then becomes, what is a sandbox? What is a railroad? Are these terms meaningful or useful? Or would we be better uh, coming up with different uh, terms or a different way of talking about all these different points on the many different ways that players and GMs can hoard or trade autonomy? Well, I think that to an extent, obviously, pretty much any sort of uh, argument like this is going to wind up having some definitional component because there is not some, you know, dictionary of gaming we can all open and point to and say, look, right here on page 114 of Unearthed Arcana, Gary Gygax defined a railroad such like. And that's what it means. Uh, this implies that we should create Ken and Robin's Dictionary of Gaming Marginalia. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure. And if, and if, if, if we're ever tired of having our works uh, respected or profitable, that will be something we'll jump right on. But um, the, the, the railroad, um, I'm, I, would, I would rather uh, go at it in terms of reclaiming the term rather than trying to convince people not to talk about the dichotomy. Because the dichotomy, uh, while loaded, is is present. It's something where... It's ineluctably hypnotic. Right. What, what, either the GM has um, uh, some sort of uh, end point, say, for the story in mind, or the GM is allowing the end point to be set by the players. Now, once the players set an end point, the lived experience of play, or at least in, in my experience, feels relatively the same if the players are going to kill... Uh, the Lord of the Elves because they hate his stupid face versus the players are going to kill the Lord of the Elves because the GM has told them that the Lord of the Elves is holding the crown of Nargathil, which uh, will destroy all the people of the lands. And either way, you're pretty much going elf killing and that is your, your, uh, your end and your means. And the degree of importance to how you got there is, I think, a degree of importance that while obviously playing either of them badly, either hiding the one uh, plastic dinosaur uh, so well that no one ever figures out what they want to do in the setting, versus uh, every single decision you make turning into a ugly crusade against elf kings. Uh, obviously, you, you can do either a sandbox or a railroad badly, and I would rather, in my um, uh, idealistic Canadian mood, try to get people away from demonizing one half of the argument and into recognizing what makes both kinds of play useful and what are the danger signs that your game has either gotten rutted in the rails or mired in the sand. Right, because even in, uh, if we're using, you know, to stick to the plastic d dinosaur analogy, if you are spending three or four sessions exploring the world and sort of puttering around and not really knowing what you're doing or what you're going to discover and then slowly working your way toward a goal that the whole party is going to then further over a series of sessions, the question then becomes, if that's really all that you want out of the sandbox is the ability to pick your own mission and your own motivations, why don't you skip that three or four sessions of puttering around and just sit down and decide ahead of time as players, we want to go on a mission against the Elf King and then have the GM design that for them. And that comes to, again, the fact that these terms seem to define different sorts of play. Another definition for the term sandbox is a game that is essentially all about exploration and 
uh, poking the environment and seeing if it pokes back and perhaps uh, building something, building a resource base without ever having a narrative particularly form out of that. And then it becomes uh, more a resource management game, whether you're in a bunker after a, a nuclear holocaust or whether you are, you know, on a pirate vessel and you're doing all the accounting for your pirate vessel and attacking other ships without looking for a, a big uh, plot line. So that we have two very different styles of play that are both defined as being the sandbox. Um, there's another question, you know, people's level of sensitivities to things that are railroady again, differs very much from players to player. Some people feel that an investigative game in which there is a fixed solution to the mystery already set up in the mind of the GM when they first encounter the mystery is railroady because it's not an improvised shared narrative experience in which you should be able to determine along the way what the clues are and that the end of the mystery is something that you work out through joint narrative control. You will have another group of people who... Uh, feel that an investigative scenario in which all of the uh, clues are, are predetermined and the solution of the mystery is predetermined, but their route around those clues is not predetermined, is not railroady. So uh, can you see a future where we have a bunch of different terms in which people can sort of be clearer about what their desires or expectations for agency are from the GM? I think that I would certainly like to have a world in which players and GMs could talk about sort of their desires uh, on any kind of metric of, of game experience, whether it be their degree of agency or the degree of um, uh, violence inherent in the system, or are we playing samurai or are we playing ninja or, you know, any number of other uh, wild uh, decision-making type uh, situations. What I do like to sort of go after because as i mentioned it's the railroad that uh that gets it in the in the neck the reclamation of the game in which something is intended to be accomplished and of course the you know first ever uh you know uh the the dungeon is in one sense a railroad in that you were delivered to the front door of that dungeon will you or nil you by the old man in the tavern or gm fiat and you go through the dungeon but you can sort of pick the order in which you go through the dungeon, and you can stop and go back to town and rest up if the level three is really bad, or you can, um, uh, you know, divert the creek and flood out levels uh, five and below if you have, you know, dwarves with stone cunning and a, and a really good or move earth spell. And so all of your sort of ways to quote unquote uh, solve the dungeon or uh, complete the dungeon, to use teleological terminology, are sort of open to you. And that sort of compromise. Uh, between having to wander all over the Shire looking for the dungeon entrance and um, being made to go through the dungeon in numerical order of uh, the room description is, I think, the sort of compromise that since the hobby grew out of, we can probably get back to with a little bit of goodwill and a little bit of willingness to reclaim railroad as a more neutral and less pejorative term. As I've uh, said in the past, uh, railroading is a pejorative term for a game session in which something gets accomplished. Right. And I think what a lot of people are thinking about when they're thinking about railroading is not that there is a goal, not that there is something to be accomplished, whether the players discover that goal or just get it as part of the premise, but how many options are cheated, are foreclosed from them, uh, just in order to sort of contain the scope of preparation that is done by the GM or uh, the word count of an adventure. So, for example, the very early Dragonlance 
adventures are kind of often cited as the uh, bubbling ichor pit of evil for railroading because there's points where it just says, well, if they try to go over here in the wilderness, uh, we don't have a whole book to tell you what happens over in the wilderness. So they, people just get keep attacked by monsters again and again until they get back on the road that we've described to you. And so uh, there are there's certainly a style of adventure that is very scripted. There are things that I early adventures that I wrote that I would now not write that way because I now in retrospect feel that they are uh, too scripted. So the question is not only one of whether there's, there's a goal, but how much uh, forcing there is to keep you moving toward a particular resolution of that goal and how many times the system does something, cheats, does something it would not or ordinarily do in order to keep you on that. So the big uh, example of that would be the uh, typical device in fiction where you encounter an antagonist early on and just talk to him and get to know him and then the fight with him comes later. And in uh, role-playing, you often see that set up early on as, well, whatever they try to do to attack him, he escapes. Um, and that breaks the contract that the rules set out that if you run into somebody who has stats that you should be able be just as able to uh, subdue or kill him in scene one as in scene eight mm -hmm. and so you have to be aware of uh, of that as sort of a classic uh, sign of railroading but that's something that actually has very little to do with whether there is a goal or not it's more about imposing a uh, a structure and a, and a genre expectation on you. And of course, um, as we have gotten better, I think, uh, or at least more, uh, uh, more broadly applicable in game design, we can start putting those sorts of genre expectations into the rules. And so, uh, the rules say, for example, that, uh, in 13th age, as you go through the fight, you get better at fighting because the rules are trying to map a fight that doesn't take all day and are trying to map sort of short, savage encounters. Another uh, rule might be that um, uh, the bad guy has, you know, a certain uh, number of hero points or a higher armor class the first time you meet him, but every time you see him after that, you're able to suss out one more of his um, uh, weaknesses and remove some of his resources that he would otherwise use to escape a sound thrashing in Act 1. Right, and as soon as you do that, as soon as you're giving the character better stats in that first scene, he has stats and theoretically can be defeated, even if you are uh, pushing toward the result where he is unlikely to be defeated, which I think most people don't see as a, a railroad per se. Uh, and so then you have to have the little sidebar, if this is a, a adventure for other people to run, where it says, well, we've set it up so there's a very slim chance that Dr. Goldust will be defeated in this opening scene. But if he is, here's what you do. And so that immediately takes you out of the realm of there's only one way that this story can go to the realm of, well, it's most likely that the story is going to go this way, and that's what we're going to talk about, but you have to be prepared for it to go in other directions. And so the question then becomes, for the players, how much do they feel railroaded? Because it is ultimately a subjective measure of something that happens during play, and you can play a, a scenario that is written in a very open-ended fashion, but either because of your own conclusions about what's going on and what's safe to do and what's not safe to do, what's smart or what is tactically unsound, you might feel that you are 
restricted to one narrow set of choices when it's really your own assumptions doing that uh, and feel railroaded at the end of having played an open-ended adventure. And likewise, you may be on a very heavily scripted adventure that only takes into account one set of choices. But if you think you made all of those choices yourself and never bumped up against the uh, rail guards that kept you uh, from making other choices, you may feel that you had enormous freedom and that you were in a sandbox uh, when, by an objective measure, by reading the adventure later, it may be kind of uh, scripted. Yeah, and and again, so much of this comes down to how good the GM is at presenting a given adventure that um, uh, the sort of the dream, the, the designer dream that has uh, been so alive this decade to uh, sort of pre-script the, um, uh, the adventure from the designer's desk is usually doomed to one or another kind of failure. And I think that your, your sort of Dragonlance-type model, where you're not providing the GM with the sufficient tools to provide the story experience that you're looking to recreate, is uh, a different one than, say, the uh, model of a, a game like uh, uh, Joe Prince's Contender, where you're trying to model a boxing movie, but you've created the rule structure such that you're modeling the boxing movie. But... Plenty of people have run the Dragonlance adventures, and their players had great, great fun. And I'm sure there are people who've played Contender that feel like they were basically just sitting and watching someone else uh, tell them about the plot of Rocky II. So it's not... Um, uh, I, I think that while we as designers can do what we can to prevent worst-case play, whether that be pixel-bitching or straightjacketing, then so much of it is in the hands of the GM. And so much of that is true for all of these sorts of aesthetic concerns, that if a, if a player uh, group feels constantly like they are uh, being forced to stand around the train station, uh, or, or worse yet, hunt all over the landscape for a train station before anything happens, or conversely, that all the interesting scenery seems to be outside the windows of the train and the actual uh, dining car is sterile and badly appointed, then you've got real problems, and but these are the kinds of problems that you have to be able to deal with with your GM, or uh, as you know the group, like you said at the beginning of the play session, saying, "Look, you all know, and I know that this adventure is called Death to the Elf King. It would really help me if you guys could get on board and figure out why you want the Elf King killed early on, so that we can run it, and I didn't waste you know thirty bucks buying an adventure book." Right. So I feel we're kind of groping toward a series of more useful dichotomies between mission-focused play and exploratory play between uh, something that is scripted uh, versus something that presents a number of different choice points. Uh, have we hit any other sort of uh, ways of sidestepping the, the sandbox versus railroading set? Um, there's also, uh, you know, sort of a lot of buried assumptions in the nature of the sandbox. We should do that when we do a setting design. Uh, uh, room on, in the gaming hut. I think that one of the other things that we do need to talk about, though, is whether a setting uh, or a story has multiple, uh, multiple, e either multiple major conflicts possible in it, or multiple roads into the major conflict. And that can be true of a single dungeon, or it can be true of a whole set of realms, forgotten or otherwise. Right. Uh, another alternative, uh, another variety of what you might call a, a sandbox is a setting where there are, uh, and this sort of works for intrigue games, where there's a status quo that's in place, and it's up to you to come along and disrupt the status quo, and then find out what happens when you do that, so that there is no 
uh, plot line in place when you enter the new city with the vampire hierarchy, but there are all of these po powers who are carefully balanced against one another, and you become the wild card that upsets the balance. And so that's sort of an emotional or political sandbox into which you are, are venturing, which is, you know, yet another style of play that, uh, you know, this simple set of terms that we like to argue about does not really uh, move us towards. So I would suggest uh, to our uh, listeners, if you can come up with other different uh, useful dichotomies that we can use in discussing all of the different flavors of a game that you might prefer. And, if, and there's also the issue of people sort of digging in and becoming hypervigilant about uh, what it is that they're worried about n not having happened to them and ruling out other things that they would think would be fun. And there's also the issue of the fact that some groups do better with one setup than another. You may think that the sandbox sounds very attractive to you, but because of the individual dynamic of the players who sit down to play with you, it might still be better to do something that is more uh, mission-focused than exploratory, for example. Right, and in certain uh, settings or at certain points along the course of the campaign, it might make sense to switch up from one t or to the other sort of play. So the classic model, of course, you begin exploratory-focused and then become mission-focused, but I can certainly understand a situation in which you begin mission-focused, and having defeated the Elf King, you are now exploratorily focused on figuring out what exactly his magic was keeping in check and what exactly um, uh, uh, was down there in his dungeons that he had locked away. It might just be beautiful princesses, or it might be something that even gave the Elf King the wiggles, and that is another set of possible... Uh, exploration nodes that then can become further mission nodes. And I, I, I tend to feel, at least in my own experience, that healthy dollops of both sorts of play can lead to, um, uh, to, to good games. And uh, although in many of my campaigns wind up uh, more exploration-focused or more mission-focused, and I try and switch out which type of campaign I'm playing to the extent that I can. Right. And you, you could start with one, and it can kind of evolve toward the other if it becomes, you know, if you have set up a mission to attack the Elf King, and it turns out that the players all get very interested in uh, stalking and protecting their magical workshop, uh, you can organically move from uh, one to the other. It occurs to me that as we talk that a less loaded way of covering this whole branch of discussion, something that I think would be much more useful than sandbox versus railroad, is GM-driven versus player-driven. That uh, with some groups, you have a very active group of players, or you have one player who sort of takes on a leadership role and is the one who, who says, well, let's build our magic workshop, and everybody else joins in on that. Um, or you have other groups where the players uh, don't really want to think that much ahead of time or don't you know, want to feel that they are treading on the uh, GM's ability to entertain them and want to show up and be presented with a situation that they then react to rather than presenting the GM with a situation that the GM reacts to. And this is and this is part of your, your status quo talk earlier. The, the notion of the players as Ujimbos coming into a status quo that is uh, either stable or metastable and destabilizing it is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, of course, is the players are guardians of the status quo and there is some vile force that is threatening to destabilize it unless they take action. But what sort of action and where can be up to the players. So podcast listeners, we've presented you with at least uh, four or five different useful dichotomies to replace this old saw of a distracting dichotomy. So uh, I think we've uh, done our work in this segment. Mm -hmm.
So now we take our double encrypted pass keys, slide them in the slider, head into the barber shop, go down the secret side of stairs into the blipping and bleeping confines of the top secret tradecraft hut, where this week we're going to look at the uh, unusual uh, early career of pulp writer Dennis Wheatley, who served as a disinformation officer uh, during World War II. And you can uh, get the full story on this in a Kindle single book called D for Deception, written by Tina Rosenberg. And before we talk about Dennis Wheatley in World War II, I thought we would kick it off by looking at Dennis Wheatley uh, and his interest to genre fans. Uh, Ken, can you uh, present us with why we as genre heads are interested in Dennis Wheatley? Dennis Wheatley is basically, he's who I want to be if I don't ever grow up. I, I, I think Dennis Wheatley had it exactly right. You you write um, uh, lurid, pot-boiling thrillers. You pretend you're an expert in a billion different things. You drink wine and wander around and talk about how the country's going to the dogs. And you have just a grand and glorious time producing, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, his historical thrillers or occult thrillers. And anyone who knows my work knows that I basically dream of producing anything that could be called a historical thriller. So uh, a guy like Dennis Wheatley appeals to me both on the sort of uh, uh, <laughs> aspirational um, uh, high Tory drinking level and also on the level of a guy who wrote uh, 10 or 11 bestsellers with a theme of black magic. I read all of these uh, in late high school and early college, just one after the other. I stumbled on a, a stash of them in a used bookstore that uh, someone had apparently you know, sold their whole collection back. And these things are... Uh, lurid and exciting and sexy and dangerous and research just enough to make it feel like uh, Dennis Wheatley is hanging around at satanic black masses taking notes uh, behind uh, snifters of brandy and but they're they're still just rollicking uh, brutalist uh, adventure fun with all of the um, uh, all of the sort of uh, snooty condescension that you can only really get from uh, British creators of adventure fiction of a certain era. And he was exactly a British creator of adventure fiction of a certain era. And so some of his work, I don't think stands the test of time as, um, uh, concerns, uh, uh positive attitudes towards people who are not upper class British people, uh, and attitudes, uh, in general towards women who, uh, Dennis Wheatley seems to think in much in the, in common with his, uh, stable mate Ian, uh, Fleming see as, uh, decorative, uh, story drivers as opposed to characters who actually have agency in uh, the course of, of the action. And um, while a lot of the, the women in his stories are quite decorative, it is very rare to find one of them who does more than um, sort of provides a, a sort of an expositional damsel or a, or an activist damsel uh, level. Uh, his his uh, stories are very much boys club stories in a way. His, his main uh, occult investigators are sort of four friends who all uh, uh, gang up together and beat the hell out of Nazis and Hitler and uh, voodoo and Satanists and all kinds of things. Uh, it is gratifying to note in this context that Wheatley is not an anti-Semite. One of his main characters, um, uh, uh, Simon Aaron, is is a Jew who is uh, welcomed by the Duck de Richelieu and his uh, waspy buddies as uh, just as good as anyone else and uh, a full member of their Satan-busting team. So he's he's a great delight to read if you're in the sort of mood to uh, return to the uh, the, the pre-war and immediately post-war era where 
Um, uh, such things could be expressed uh, with a fuller throat and a fuller snifter of brandy than perhaps they can now. Yeah, I come to Wheatley from one step removed. I've never read any of his fiction, but I do really love the Hammer film, The Devil Rides Out, uh, with Christopher Lee, which I gather features his uh, main iconic character and uh, is one of those compulsively rewatchable films, at least for me, and is uh, maybe my favorite uh, Hammer film of them all. Wow. I mean, I, I like that movie a lot, but I'm not sure that I would call it my favorite Hammer film. But it was only made because Christopher Lee refused to do any more films for Hammer unless they uh, adapted some, uh, some proper uh, right-wing horror fiction for a change, so that he could play the Duc de Richelieu and um, uh, glower at people and lecture them on the occult. Now, before he became known as a writer of occult uh, thrillers, he was a writer of espionage thrillers in the 30s and 40s and the, uh, with his protagonist, Gregory Sallust. And the interesting thing about his writing in that vein, uh, which is, has that, uh, judging from the excerpts in uh, D for Deception, have that great breezy tang of something that was quickly written in a single draft, mm -hmm. um, but by someone reasonably facile, um, uh, he would have Gregory Sallust go and be captured by and meet and have a dinner party with, for example, Goering while the war was in place. Well, <laughs> well, well you, you know, these were still current events. So it's, you know, it's as if Alex Patterson had a, a hero who went and, and met and fought bin Laden, for example. <laughs> uh, so these were uh, very much ripped from the headlines, uh, spy thrillers and his work, on these spy thrillers brought him to the attention of the British intelligence establishment. And in the run-up to World War II, it might be said that the uh, British military establishment in general was not composed primarily of people who f examined unexamined assumptions. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a fair statement. Um, and so... Uh, Someone in the high command got a hold of uh, these letters that he was writing them, and his premise uh, before the war started was that if war occurred between uh, Britain and Germany, that Hitler might not follow the recognized boundaries of civilized warfare. <laughs> and so, a bold uh, he, statement to be sure. Yes, um, and so he wrote a. Uh, sort of a, a futuristic scenario of uh, what horrible things uh, the Nazis might do in attacking Britain if they decided not to play fair. And most of the military establishment uh, was shocked and horrified uh, by this and rejected it as obviously absurd, but enough people paid attention that he uh, got a job uh, working uh, first as a consultant and then later uh, at full time uh, for British intelligence, and he wound up designing disinformation campaigns. And some of the things that he proposed were rejected as crazy. For example, he proposed building a gigantic flaming raft that would be uh, sent against uh, Germany's navy. And so when that was considered to be too nuts, he just put that in a novel and mm -hmm. other things that he, uh, other fictions that he created actually wound up targeted to an audience of one, uh, which was Hitler. And for example, uh, they discovered that, uh, Hitler was convinced that the key to defending, uh, Axis territory was control of Norway, that Norway was the fulcrum of the war. And so they set up this great disinformation campaign to keep him focused on Norway and not on any of the areas they were planning to invade. And this was made 
easier by the fact that uh, during World War II, British intelligence managed to turn every single agent working for the Nazis in the UK, which is an amazing accomplishment. Well, it's a little um, uh, less amazing when you realize that the uh, Nazi agents were being run by Admiral Canaris, who actually wanted Hitler to lose. So I'm fairly sure that the the, the uh, Obver did not send its A-team against Britain. And uh, another sort of interesting fact in his this sort of blending of fiction and reality or creating real-world fiction is that working under him, although not directly under him, but you know, in the same office, was uh, someone we've already mentioned in this segment, uh, Ian Fleming. So you get the uh, two of the great uh, pulp writers of the 20th century uh, working uh, in the same office against the Nazis at the same time. And I believe Christopher, Christopher Lee is related to Fleming, isn't he, in some way? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that they're... I mean, at some level, the, the British upper class uh, tends to intermarry, so they might be, you know, second cousins or something. I didn't know that they were related, but it wouldn't stun and amaze me to find out. So uh, if we were to take this sort of one uh, step further uh, from uh, truth into fiction, how do we... Uh, leverage the uh, confluence of Fleming and uh, Wheatley in uh, British disinformation efforts and uh, turn it into a uh, premise for a campaign or a novel. Well, to begin with, we also have to remember that both Dennis Wheatley and Ian Fleming knew Alistair Crowley, as did the one of the British heads of counterintelligence, uh, Maxwell Knight, who was one of the guys that uh, Fleming allegedly modeled M on. And so all of these guys are acquainted with, in some cases friendly with, Crowley, although the way that um, uh, Wheatley describes uh, the black magicians in his Satanist novels makes you think that he at least was not particularly impressed by the old um, uh, uh, wife-beater and heroin addict. So um, he... Uh, the, the, uh, the, the sort of the occult rumor, even at the time, was that uh, Fleming was using Crowley to sort of prosecute a, a secret magical war against Hitler and to bring about um, uh, specifically the defection of Rudolf Hess be, by playing on Hess's uh, fascination with astrology and magic. And to the extent that that ever happened, uh, Fleming sort of went on and off the record about exactly what he had done in, in terms of disinformation attempts against Hess. But if you simply go the one step further and say, oh yeah, absolutely they're bringing in Aleister Crowley uh, on a consulting basis, and what the hell, Alan Turing was working in their office too, so we have uh, the father of modern computer science and uh, the Antichrist and uh, two really badass uh, playboy gentleman writers. Uh, you, 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 I mean, that's a, that's a player character party right there is what that is, and there's, uh, no, there's no shortage of what they can get up to. Uh, I will point out that um, uh, Dennis Wheatley has also written your campaign for you in a Gregory Sallust novel called They Used Dark Forces, in which Gregory Sallust takes on the secret Satanist and occult uh, masters behind the Reich. Uh, he wrote that fairly late in his life after he'd um, uh, sort of uh, decided to start uh, tying up his multiverse the way that Stephen King does. Uh, but, it's a, but it's another rollicking uh, Dennis Wheatley thriller with plenty of black magic to thwart for your uh, noble occult uh, disinformation guys. Right. You could also do a sort of getting the band back together uh, campaign where you are the uh, young generation of investigators and you are uncovering the connections between Turing and Crowley and Fleming and uh, Wheatley and discovering that, you know, the secret, you know, why did Wheatley turn on Crowley and uh, 
you know, portray his world so negatively later on? What was the great betrayal that came out of that? And what MacGuffin does that lead you toward? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the, the notion that um, uh, Britain's occult uh, espionage establishment did something for which blowback is now due. It has a great um, uh, uh, resonance both in sort of occult adventure and in, you know, actual spy history that, you know, the American, the, the, the really fairly top-notch American oper- and British operation to overthrow uh, Mossadegh, the uh, prime minister of Iran, of course, had legendarily horrible blowback uh, a couple of uh, decades down the road. So if you imagine whatever really awesome thing Crowley and Wheatley and Fleming got up to back in 1941, having similar blowback in 1961, just as James Bond is sort of showing up on the world stage and fighting, you know, uh, Smirsch and Spectre, I think that you can have a really um, uh, strong... Uh, I mean, and, and you can go all kinds of different ways. You can either play it straight, you can sort of go planetary with it, in which these fictional creations are beginning to drive uh, the occult world that uh, somehow they've created tulpas, maybe, that are going around uh, leading the world into conflagration. Uh, any number of possibilities uh, begin to emerge. You could even do a, a linked series of sort of mini campaigns in which you go backwards in time over a series of blowbacks. So you have the global war on terror era mini campaign that uncovers uh, uh, secrets that you then go back and you play the uh, early 60s uh, group of characters and then you go back in time to the uh, to the uh, 40s in World War II and uh, uh, you know I guess you could keep on going back to uh, uh, Kipling and Wells in an earlier generation of uh, secret adventurers. Or, or back into um, uh, Wheatley's uh, French Revolution uh, Scarlet Pimpernel slash Hornblower era series, the Roger Brooks series, which is another batch of uh, historical espionage thrillers, and at least some of them have occult contents as well. And for extra points, go all the way back to Christopher Marlowe. Yeah, right, who is combining simultaneously uh, great writing, uh, espionage, and the occult in one man. Another thing that um, I should mention right now about uh, Dennis Wheatley before we get too excited, uh, that's not immediately relevant to his uh, tradecraft, but is interesting to us as uh, people uh, in his sort of line of work, is that he was a game designer. He invented the How to Host a Murder Mystery game, basically, with something he called the Crime Dossier, where he would provide just the testimonies and the photos of witnesses and samples of hair that you would be able to touch as the player, which sort of makes uh, Chaosium uh, <laughs> legendary handouts have something to aim for. And this is stuff he was doing in the 30s, right? 36 uh, was the first one, Murder Off Miami. Uh, and then uh, he also uh, designed three board games, uh, one called Invasion, about an invasion of a imaginary country off the coast of imaginary Europe, and another one called Blockade, in which you used your country's navy to overcome a strategic stalemate on land, and that he did the invasion in 38 and Blockade in 39, so he was already thinking uh, sort of strategically about the war, and then he did another one that I think was a mystery board game called Alibi, which I expect is sort of a clue knockoff. But, so is uh, there a flaming raft piece in the uh, <laughs> naval invasion one? <laughs> I don't know if there is if there is the um, uh, if there is the optional rules for flaming rafts in invasion or in blockade. I think that either one of them can use a flaming raft. I think we should all look at our game designs and ask, where's the flaming raft here? And now, having covered the secrets of Dennis Wheatley and World War II and the occult and the Elizabethan era and all of that, I think it's time to bid farewell once again to the Tradecraft Hunt. 
It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Craig Maloney asks Ken and Robin. Burning Wheel seems like a neat little system with some very clever mini games within it. Gumshoe, on the other hand, doesn't really have many mini games within it. Are mini games part of a good system design? I would say that's like asking are tracking shots part of a good movie. That sometimes uh, mini games do what you want them to do, and at other times they do not. And like any of the tools in the designer's toolkit, you use them to achieve particular effects rather than uh, deciding that it is either a good thing or a bad thing in all instances and trying to put them in all instances into your games. Uh, Burning Wheel in particular occupies this really interesting niche as uh, a narrative-inspired game that also encourages you to acquire a high degree of system mastery. So it makes total sense that Luke built a bunch of cool mini-games into it, that it's for someone who loves system crunch, even though you are, uh, for the duration of your Burning Wheel campaign, leaving the uh, confines of the, you know, crunchy simulationist uh, approach to a what he designs as a crunchy narrative approach. And so, for example, it's a little surprise that uh, someone like our pal Peter Atkinson loves both D&D and Burning Wheel because they're doing similar things in very different sectors. And so you absolutely need a bunch of cool mini games to satisfy that urge because that's what Luke is setting out to do. Uh, Gumshoe, on the other hand, is setting out to model investigative games. And for that, it never really seemed to me that I needed mini games to achieve that. And, you know, the closest you get to a mini game would be like the space combat system in Ash and Stars. And that is an area where the players have an expectation that there will be a space combat system and then it will be its own separate thing that feels kind of separate the way that a space combat feels like its own unique sequence in a space opera TV show or a movie. But that's as close as I get to a minigame because that's as close as I come to needing that tool. Yeah, I think that the um, the, the in Gumshoe, one of the things that makes Gumshoe a powerful design and one of the reasons that we're building Gumshoe the way that we're building it is that you provide a strong degree of rules elegance and rules coherence so that you can basically disappear the rules while you're modeling the genre and while you're modeling the kind of, of, of story or narrative that Gumshoe is intended to uh, evoke and support mechanically. And if you had to keep stopping and doing a different minigame, it it's, it's harder both to design uh, something that feels like part of Gumshoe, and then it's also, I think, harder to sort of get people back into the flow. And Gumshoe really has a, a, a story flow and a, and a gaming flow of you know, figuring out where, when you're going to spend a point and, and keeping alert for the clue. I mean, the players in Gumshoe, I, I think, tend to be uh, fairly active observers, and it's harder to do that if you have to keep switching your mind from uh, tactical play to story play to actor play to, um, oh, goodness, isn't it great that I can fill in a puzzle piece play? Um, and, and all of those are... Uh, maybe part of Gumshoe, but we don't need to keep switching the mechanics up as well. Yeah, that opens up an interesting broader question, which is the one of uh, how much cognitive taxation are you willing to impose on the players and GM as you design a game? And so that the things that you decide to 
emphasized to occupy their mind and you, the, the collective minds of the group and their mental energy and focus, which are both in finite supply, no matter how big your Mountain Dew tin is, that the things that you want them to focus on are the, are the things that you want to make available to them as, as the things that they have to direct their mental energy towards. So in Gumshoe, for example, you're trying to solve a mystery so that you've got all of these clues, some of which resolve into the narrative that is the mystery that you're trying to solve, and others of which are the classic red herrings and uh, false clues and misleading side avenues, some of which you are generating during play and some of which are in the uh, adventure if you're using a pre-written adventure, so that asking people to, on top of that, then perform uh, some sort of puzzle-solving task or shift into another you know, game entirely for a while is going to make it a lot harder for them to remember all of the details of the mystery. Whereas if you have a game that you're, the whole point of it is there's all these little mini activities that, you know, you're going to break for half an hour to do this, and that'll be a really discreet segment of play. And then you, you know, you could have a game that you could sort of envision as, you know, the narrative is a connective tissue between different mini games. Yeah, the um, uh, in sort of that context, I do want to mention uh, one of the games that I think does mini games really, really well in the role playing space, and that's Aces and Eights, the uh, sort of Western uh, modeled uh, role playing game from Kenzer and Company. And what they're doing is they're basically telling westerns, but they're looking at the fact that a lot of westerns, although they have generally the same agon, the same sort of conflict. They have all kinds of different forms. So there's the cattle drive western, and there's the town building western, and there's the cavalry western, and there's the gunfighter western, and all of these westerns feel different when you're watching them. I mean, your example of the um, uh, of the space combat scene in an episode of Star Trek, you know, if you compare, say, you know, Red River to uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, they're both John Wayne westerns, but they both have very different sorts of feels as to what the characters are trying to accomplish, and the Aces and Eights has many, many, many mini-games so that although all of your adventures are you in a cowboy hat with a six-shooter wandering around an alternate history Old West and gunning down owl hoots, in the course of those adventures, you're doing so many other exciting things that feel like Westerns and that feel like the sort of quasi-historical experience of the West that Westerns try and provide as well that I think it really enriches play. And a, a game like Aces and Eights is a game where if you don't believe in mini-games, you look at that game and you're, you you, uh, you really see where they can be used in that kind of genre emulation or that kind of story uh, space. And I think that Aces and Eights does a terrific job. And if, say, uh, you and I ever do a, a game, even a gumshoe game, in which the goal is more sort of an ex exploration-focused uh, uh, adventure and less of a story-focused adventure, we might well come back and start thinking, how can we do mini-games for court intrigue and mini-games for alchemy and mini-games for dragon taming or whatever it happens to be? Right. The, the emotional message that you're sending by introducing a mini-game is this is different and this is important. So if you have uh, you know, your Aces of Eights game, and this is the week where you unveil the Cattle Drive mini-game, uh, and I'm not sure if it has a Cattle Drive. It does. Drive. It has a really cool Cattle Drive mini-game. Um, so that you are saying, you know, this is the thing that's going to make this session memorable, is this is the one where we sit down and learn and play the Cattle Drive uh, part of the rules, and, uh, you know, that's a way that you could, again, sort of structure the 
the campaign so that if you, you know, create your scenario so that the outcome of the cattle drive is really important, people will be invested uh, and, and the process of learning and mastering the, the cattle drive rules is something that if you have a great time that you uh, take home with you when you leave. And that's how you will always remember that is through part of the experience of going from, you know, inexperience to mastery as characters is mirrored as your experience of going from inexperience to mastery as players. Uh, one thing you have to be cautious about when introducing mini games is uh, how the tastes of your players conform with the desire to get handsy with a bunch of different rules components because there are some people who love uh, the aesthetic of rules and want to handle them a lot and other people who want the rules to get out of the way so that they can experience the emotions of their characters or look forward to the narrative progression or hit things with their axe or or whatever it is so that that's the degree to which a game consists of mini games is something that you want to take into account when you're trying to match your group to a game yeah i, I think that that certainly is something uh that is another thing to look at both as a designer if you're saying i'm trying to design this game to feel uh like a steady flow versus i'm trying to create a more picaresque sort of a game like Burning Wheel or like uh, Burning Empires, actually, which is another minigame-rich design from the great Luke Crane. Um, the versus I'm trying to um, deliberately evoke as a sense of, like you said, exploration and mastery of finding some new part of the environment and feeling comfortable in it as modeled kinesthetically by learning a new set of rule systems. And I think that a lot of those decisions, they... they the, Designers certainly need to think about them, but also the GM and the players need to think about them. Well, at the very least, they need to think, how much time are we really, you know, do we really want to spend learning a new rule set if we're all getting here after work, basically to blow off steam and, and murder some, some elves? Right, because in a way, the minigame has to be even more compelling than the game that you're momentarily suspending to enter the minigame. That if the you get to the point of the cattle drive and everybody's like, Oh man, we got to go to the cattle drive now. You've got a problem, yeah. either a problem of timing within the session or uh, a problem of the commitment of players to learning new little mini games and playing them out. Or, you know, as a designer during playtest, if you're getting that uh, response, uh, then you know that, you know, maybe your mini game is not as compelling as it needs to be. And that's the challenge of designing a game with a lot of mini games in it is that um, not only does your core system that connects all the mini games have to be rock solid but each individual mini game has to stand on its own and so you're creating an enormously larger task for yourself as a designer which you know if you knock it out of the park will really impress people and if you you know if you fail uh, even in one area even with your gadget rules for example that people will remember trying to enter into one mini game that didn't work and that will sort of sour them so that you know multiplies by, you know, the number of minigames, the difficulty of designing and playtesting uh, that rule set. And one of the challenges there is that it's very difficult to get playtest feedback from players over a long period of time. So uh, you've got to have really, really committed playtesters if you've got five different minigames because you want them to play long enough to naturally engage with all of them, which is a, a tall order. Yeah, the... Um, uh... The, the the challenge of, of playtesting any game that is more complex and more um, uh, 
and 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 depends on some on, on a more than usual degree of of playtester commitment. Either because you have to playtest all three parts of the of the story arc, or you have to playtest uh, a long adventure campaign, or whatever it is. I mean, that's that's a whole different design question uh, by itself. But the notion of of mini games uh, focus uh, for the players is mirrored, of course, as focus for the designer. And if the designer feels like he has to have a mini game, but he's burned out and doesn't really have a clever game, the temptation is, well, how often are they going to have a cattle drive? I can put a mediocre cattle drive in there, and the two times they have it, 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 it stands up to basic play, and the fact that it's not replayable is irrelevant because the game's not going to be all about cattle drives. I should hasten to add that the Ace of the Eights game is not like that, that, that their cattle drive is a fun little game that you can play. Well, here's a counterexample that we can give you, which is Grapple in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, God, yeah. That's... Right. that's um, I'm not. I doubt uh, that it was thought of at the time as being a mini game, but that's clearly what it is because it departs completely from the other set of rules uh, that govern combat into an attempt to break down all the different elements of a weaponless close-up fight, and that is something that you know got out and got published, and many people had to excuse the phrase "grapple with." Um, that it never really ever worked. And so, you know, one of the things that I liked best about uh, 4E is that finally grapple was like, you know, a paragraph. <laughs> it was a simple rule right. and it stopped trying to be a mini game that went, oh, now here's this thing that has great emotional weight to it. We're going to, because, you know, weaponless fighting is really important in D&D. &D. Let's, you know, whenever we shift to this, it's a big deal. You know, whenever you used to shift to it in the old rules, it was a big hassle. And consequently, the, you never did it because it was an enormous pain. Yeah, the um, uh, the the, the mini game that is so annoying that you avoid the thing that it's supposed to model is sort of a an unintended genius of game design. And certainly, since no GM has ever wanted to run grappling in D and think maybe the mini game performed a sort of a meta purpose, despite being sort of a, a half-assed tack on. As right. you mentioned. Although it, it was a, you know, to the extent that D&D attempts to emulate anything, which of course is, is it's maybe third or fourth goal, <laughs> um, it does, you know, fail to emulate uh, a lot of fights that you will see in uh, fantasy games where the object is not to uh, gorily eviscerate your opponents, but to uh, subdue them. And so that the, you know, the subduing rules uh, consequently also never really worked for a long time. Yeah. No, there, there's a there's there's a degree to which um, the organic evolution of a of a, of a rule set uh, causes more problems than it solves, and I think the sort of the the archaeology of of D and D game design, while uh, obviously one should avoid too much uh, historic hindsight, is an interesting thing to look at as a cautionary tale uh, if you're going to be a game designer who wants people to play your game for more than you know a year or two. Well, and the caution would be uh, if you want people to play a mini game, make sure it really, really works and that it's, uh, you know, at least as much fun in small doses as the main thing. And keeping on the D&D tip, you could also look at the different stages of different iterations of D&D as separate games, as mini games, right? Because notoriously in, you know, what we think now as the classic iterations of D&D, there was traditionally a sweet spot from and people will argue over where it is, but let's say it's from fourth to seventh level mm -hmm. where the game really comes into balance and all the players are sort of balanced with each other and they're they're balanced with the, the creatures and they're no longer 
you know, fragile, but they're no longer so powerful that they can uh, override any attempt to uh, impose any sort of narrative limitation on on what the uh, challenges are that the characters face. Um, and ag again, an attempt was made in four to create sort of three very distinct uh, versions of the game that uh, all felt like D&D, &D, but also all felt like themselves within each, you know, 10 level increment. And of course, uh, the degree to which you feel that succeeded depends on the degree to which you feel that 4E in general succeeded. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, you can certainly look at that sort of notion of the game as it progresses through its natural play stage as progressing through a series of minigames uh, almost ineluctably. And I think you can draw similar examples of of that sort of play to most games that have character advancement. And to an extent, you can have that a little bit uh, just narratively because I've always found, for example, that when the players have got the main landscape of the campaign set in their mind, that it's a similar switch turn in, you know, Call of Cthulhu or, or Knights Black Agents or whatever it happens to be to the point at which you hit fourth level and you finally get Fireball, right? That the players have so many more tactical approaches and possibilities for putting pressure on the setting that it feels like a different game than the, you know, we're going to walk from block to block in London and hope the giant centipedes don't ambush us feel that the opening stages of a lot of campaigns turn out to be. And I find in my GMing, at least, that I try and prolong that mid-game feel as much as I can because the end game uh, is either going to be sad because you're leaving behind a, a great adventure or uh, it's going to have the same sort of... Um, uh, let's say challenges politely that engage uh, when you're trying to put retroactive shape onto a fundamentally improvised art form. I'm sure that Louis Armstrong, whenever he was, or rather Louis Armstrong, whenever he was um, uh, finishing up a jazz set would have to work double hard to make sure it sounded like a composition instead of a bunch of guys having fun in a nightclub. Right. And talking about fireball, that's sort of a crunchy bit, a spell in this case, that itself is a mini game because, you know, in the classic version, you're plotting out the number of squares where the you know all the blowback goes, and all of a sudden you're switching in mid combat from uh, a tactical situation to you've got sort of a spatial puzzle to work out, mm -hmm. and uh, that can be uh, uh, interesting or annoying depending on your desire to suddenly switch gears uh, into the mini game of plotting where the fireball will optimally go, and uh, you that raises the question of sort of an interesting game in which you purposely set out to identify uh, crunchy bits that go with all the different character uh, classes that then bring into play their own uh, mini-game. But again, that depends on an audience and a designer who is really focused on uh, system mastery and a desire to uh, handle the rules a lot. Yeah, and um, I, th I think that the basic uh, goal then would be, you know, put in as many good games as you can think of, but no more. Yes, and, and there's the rub, and, and uh, I think on that word of wisdom that we have uh, more than answered uh, Craig's question. And now as we once again wend our way up the creaky staircase to the office of the consulting occultist, it is time to consider the question of lost continents. Uh, this uh, 
uh, week, or I guess last week when you're hearing this, we heard that there may have been a discovery by geologists of a sunken continent off the coast of Mauritius. Uh, whether it is really there or not turns on the question of whether the greater than number of usual zircons that wash up on the beach of Mauritius are uh, due to uh, this effect or some other effect. Um, and of course, this could not possibly be the inspiration for human lost continent myths, because this continent, if indeed it exists and sunk uh, below the waves, uh, did so during the Cretaceous period. So it might be the origin of dinosaur myths of lost continents. But I thought it would provide an interesting little segue into the general occult slash elepatonic topic of lost continents. So, Ken, could you take it away and give us a Lost Continents 101? Well, to begin with, um, this Lost Continent sort of recapitulates all other Lost Continents in that it seems like a big impressive thing, and when you look at it, it turns out to be not much. Uh, the Lost <laughs> Continent in uh, off Mauritius was about the size of Vermont. It was not, they call it a microcontinent, or as I like to call them, islands. An island, yeah. <laughs> and Atlantis, similarly, um, when you look at uh, Plato's description of Atlantis, it's the size of Libya, which is not a particularly big uh, stretch of, of uh, territory either. Uh, lost continents, of course, uh, begin with um, uh, Plato <laughs> committing the uh, classical Greek version of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when he says, this is a story about an ideal philosophical kingdom uh, west of the pillars of Hercules. And to all educated Greeks, that meant I'm making this up to make a philosophical point back off. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take this l literally, uh, <laughs> trolls in the Agora. Exactly. Misapprehending Plato, I suspect, goes back to Plato. And so, therefore, <laughs> um, uh, people immediately began sorting around looking for signs of Plato's Atlantis. Because the whole notion of a golden age that we have sadly fallen away from is, of course, part of the uh, point that Plato was making, but is also a very tempting uh, uh, arrow to reach for in our mental quiver as we try to understand how George Washington could be so awesome, but President Bush and President Obama were not awesome. And obviously there must have been some occult secret that the founding fathers had, whether it was Freemasonry or um, uh, atheism or whatever it happened to be, that we sadly have lost. And that same narrative is repeated over and over and over in virtually every sort of human thinking about history. My life around me is fairly crummy. Surely, back in the past when things were exciting and Dennis Wheatley was putting in all those adjectives, it must have been better. And the Lost Continent is a sort of a concretized expression of that, of that dream and that desire. And of course, once you've got one Lost Continent, you start wanting more. They're like Lay's potato chips. So you have the Lost Continent of Mew, which extended across the Pacific Ocean and is based on a misprint by um, a French archaeologist. Uh, you have the continent of Lemuria, which began as a paleontological explanation for why there are lemurs both in Madagascar and in South Asia, and there surely must have been a continent that allowed them to walk back and forth uh, between the two places. This was invented in the mid-19th century before continental drift had been uh, successfully theorized. And, and, and not nearly as interesting as an ancient civilization of lemurs. Right, no, which is even even better before you realize that Lemures is also the Roman name for the angry dead. So the notion that the angry dead of Rome moved to Madagascar and ate fruit is just, 
it's overwhelming. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a mistranslation of the ringtail dead. Exactly. Right. Yes. They, they, what they actually meant was that they were just they were ringtailed and and um, uh, fructivorous. Uh, but the uh, but the, you have uh, lost continents in uh, the north, Hyperborea and Thule. You have lost continents. Uh, from uh, Hindu mythology, because they have the same human desire to find glory in the past, uh, to contrast with the horribly unsatisfactory present that Plato and uh, modern political commentators do. So they have the lost continent of Rutas that lives in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, and of course, to uh, blend all of that, you do have examples of geological subsidence that do happen in historical or close prehistorical time, such as the Dogger Banks between Britain and Scandinavia, which sank roughly 6,000 BC, give or take 4,000 years, and can be presumed to have had actual modern Cro-Magnon-style humans wandering around on them, and probably telling each other stories of, oh my god, you should have been there when the Dogger Banks sank. It was so much better than this crummy fishing village is now. And you have a similar situation. Uh, geologists are beginning to note that the land around Indonesia sank fairly catastrophically, and, or, you know, for a, for a geological event anyway, fairly suddenly over the period of a few centuries in around uh, 10 or 12,000 BC, most of this being caused, of course, by the melting of the ice caps at the end of the Ice Age. But, but the, the Sundaland, what they, what they call that, may have sunk in recent enough era that uh, the people who settled Indochina have some... Uh, cultural memory of uh, a land to the east that used to be there and isn't there now. Uh, and again, you can sort of go back and forth. And since we're dealing with preliterate cultures and geological uh, time that can be expressed with error bars in the order of a century, you're not going to get a smoking gun. No, honest to God, uh, the floor of the Black Sea was the lost continent of Atlantis, and we ha and we know which Indo-European tribesmen climbed up and told the story that got down to Plato. Uh, 11,000 years later. And so these uh, myths of a great and glorious golden past, which uh, sunk beneath the waves, uh, lead us in a couple of different directions. One of them is the uh, connection to deluge myths, which is uh, uh, not only did these uh, places, uh, if they existed in a state of perfection and then ceased to exist, it can't just be that there was a cataclysm. There had to be some sort of agency behind that, some sort of story that accounts for a fall. And so there is the idea of, you know, the great society, whatever it was, and what mistake they made that led them to be uh, destroyed. And then that uh, takes us into uh, flood mythology, which is another uh, sort of common link across cultures. Yeah, the supposition of a lost continent Im implies the question, so what happened to it? And Plato's answer that... Um, uh, the the continent of Atlantis uh, lost a war with Athens and then turned uh, inward and fell away from the ideal Plato Republic form that it had existed to demonstrate. Uh, the story actually breaks off, so we don't know how Plato intended to uh, return of the Jedi, that whole thing. But we have the general later tradition that Zeus got mad at them or Poseidon withdrew his hand and they sank. But how much of that is medieval uh, mythographing and how much of that was Plato's original uh, draft for the trilogy is uh, not probably knowable at this time. And so these myths become literalized later by various uh, occultists who believe that uh, or uh, propose to believe that these things existed and that their secrets can be accessed and the power of this golden age uh, resurrected. So what uh, sort of 
notable traces of Lost Continent mythology uh, surface in uh, occultism? Well, uh, to begin with, we have our good old friend uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who dined out on Lost Continents as a big chunk of her theosophical history, because each of her root races sort of had its own Lost Continent. So the Hyperboreans had their Lost Continent, Hyperborea, which when it fell caused the rising of Lemuria, so the Lemurians could get their Lost Continent, and when it fell, it raised Atlantis, and so forth and so forth. And so the constant sort of cyclical pattern of Golden Age and catastrophe that she was uh, theologically inclined towards also showed up in her uh, occultism and the, the bits of occultism she trolled for. Uh, uh, conversely, you have the demythologizing tendency of Lost Continents in which <laughs> people like Ignatius Donnelly attempt to explain away uh, the Norse myth of Ragnarok as a uh, mythologized version of the perfectly natural sinking of Atlantis caused by a comet. And that shows up <laughs> with uh, people like uh, Emmanuel Vilikovsky later on who uh, find our <laughs> boring conventional physics and geology too constraining for them. It's too railroaded, and they want a more sandboxy uh, physical science. Uh, so I, I think that you, you, you begin with those, you can go with those guys towards sort of the secular myth of the Lost Continent, or you can go into the crazy occult myth of your uh, good old Nazis with Thule Bruderschaft and the notion that the Aryan race emerged on a uh, lost or uh, frozen over continent at, at the North Pole, which before the uh, Earth's pole shifted was, of course, a time of eternal spring, which is why Apollo's kingdom of Hyperborea was ruled by the sun, not by, you know, the god of being frozen to death, which the Greeks wouldn't really have had, but they could have made up. Right. And so whenever you're envisioning a golden age, you are doing that in order to try and bring it back, to bring back uh, qualities of this place that you imagine. So uh, what uh, occult powers attempt to draw from the myths of Lost Continents? I think that the general sort of occult power uh, coming out of the myth of the Lost Continent is the notion of the primordial wisdom, right? That once you've got your Lost Continent, which you've established for whatever reason, so now the question is, what happened to it? It sank or exploded or caught on fire, was covered by a glacier. And then you say, but how do you know that? And the answer has to be because some wisdom was saved. And once you've got a, a world of secret wisdom saved from Atlantis or Mew or Lemuria or Hyperborea or Rutas or uh, wherever, you can now be building a really rocking occult tradition because these are the guys who, when they were in charge, everything was an awesome golden age, remember, all the way back from the beginning of the discussion, so if we can use their powers to bring about our crazy political goals, we will also be able to recapitulate the Golden Age. But the notion that this uh, survivor art, this sort of um, uh, maybe misunderstood magic or powerful artifact that survived uh, is somehow significant. And that can be an artifact like uh, building pyramids, because uh, it was not uh, too late in the, in the game before Atlantologists noticed that Egyptians had pyramids and Mayans had pyramids. And what's in the middle of those pyramids? Atlantic Ocean, QED. So pyramids must be a magical uh, or occult uh, art brought to us by Atlantis and then carried out by perhaps shell-shocked or ignorant survivors of the deluge. Right. And so magic revolving around the idea of the lost continent is no small war magic. It's not you're trying you're not trying to sour your neighbor's uh, milk or uh, get the uh, maiden who wouldn't 
look twice at you to uh, look at you a third time, but you are trying to create a an inbreak of occult power in order to achieve a great political working, to change the tenor of your current insufficient age back into your ideal age that you were imagining. Yeah, and you can either be doing that uh, deliberately artistically, like Plato, or you can be doing that in a occult sense, like um, uh, the various uh, Nazi Hyperborea theorists around Himmler were, or you can be doing somewhere in the middle with half-artistic, half-political goals, like uh, Helena Blavatsky was for her Lost Continents, or like... Um, the uh, eccentric Colonel James Churchward was for Mew. Uh, when you start reading his lengthy discussions of Mew, it turns out to be a fairly, <laughs> a fairly clear. Well, let's just say that Mew was ruled by a great white brotherhood, as so many of these lost continents tend to be, and move on from Colonel Churchward. But he had very definite uh, theological beliefs that could only be expressed in lost continent form. But yeah, the the recreation of a lost continent or the reintroduction of a lost continent's uh, lore is as cataclysmic an event as the sinking of the Lost Continent was to begin with. It's, it's sort of uh, rhyming that, uh, that, that, that song of history or uh, matching the, uh, narratively the opening cataclysm with a closing, uh, whatever, euclism, uh, eucatastrophe, an apocalypse, an unveiling of, a, uh, of, of the new land. So if the project of envisioning a lost continent and attempting to rediscover it is inherently because you are envisioning a past golden age and you are seeking the uh, wisdom and goodness of the past and trying to bring it into the present, that's inherently a conservative in the broadest possible sense impulse. And that raises the question possibly for uh, listeners at home as to, you know, what a uh, progressive lost continent would be. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, of course, that um, although it is, as you point out quite rightly, a broadly conservative or reactionary policy, uh, or at least a posture, um, the actual people coming up with these lost continents are quite often on the uh, progressive end of the stick on a lot of questions. Uh, Blavatsky, of course, was not uh, a little bit motivated by the desire to see India uh, become independent of Great Britain, which was certainly a progressive cause at the time. And Ignatius Donnelly, the father of American Atlantis studies, uh, was a uh, a populist Republican and a uh, believer in um, sort of uh, the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau and other uh, 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 you know rights for farmers and other sort of progressive Republican beliefs at that time. Um, I believe that he uh, he founded the Populist Party in America among other uh, <laughs> among other lost causes. And so uh, you can certainly look at this notion of a lost ancient wisdom that we must get back to as a reactionary posture. But if, by an odd coincidence, the uh, lost golden continent had free socialized health care and no guns, then, you know, you're using the uh, imaginary world of the past to point towards a, a future goal that is not as, as immediately connected to a, a tactically conservative project, maybe. So by citing... Uh Nazis, Madame Blavatsky, the progressive movement, uh, and various other sub-references, I think that we may have achieved the lodestone of Ken and Robin talk about stuff, which implies that somewhere on a lost continent, there is the telepathic uh, mind device that is beaming into our future and uh, inspiring us to have and now to close this very podcast. And perhaps it closes sinking under the weight of all the other references we've piled onto it.
Uh, yes, uh, weight reference syncing is always a hazard here at Ken and Robin Talk About That's Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Sift our shores for Telltale Zircons at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.